Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. I can't, I can't explain maybe, or, or maybe I don't need to explain what has happened over the past two years with COVID, with lockdowns, with government overreach. We've seen a lot of things over the past few years, things that have kind of made us a little bit angry. We've seen the elites in our government almost take tyrannical measures to impose their power on citizens. We've seen small businesses almost run out and go bankrupt. And many of them have claimed that they're doing these things for the well-being of the people. Yet, we can't look into the motives of our leaders, but we wonder if it's more just to have a power grab and to hold on to more and more power. And so I think... If, if, if there's something that's taught us over the past couple years, we long for leaders who truly care about their people. Leaders that truly care about the well-being of their citizens. It's very unusual to find a monarch or a king or an emperor or a leader who has absolute power and yet at the same time actually shows mercy and love and compassion to their citizens. It brings up an interesting question. Can absolute power and compassion coexist in a leader? Can a leader have absolute power and also at the same time have compassion? Is there such a leader? It's an ideal that we would like, and I wonder if it truly could ever happen because of human sin, but we long for leaders that show compassion. And I can think of no other leader who embodies both absolute sovereignty and immense compassion than Jesus Christ himself. He embodies both of those attributes, absolute sovereignty, and yet at the same time, compassion and care and mercy. And last week, Jesus emphatically told us He's the only way of salvation. There is no other way. You've got to enter through the narrow door. Narrow is the way of salvation. And we're to go through Jesus. And those who don't go through the door of Jesus, those that don't enter into salvation through Jesus, heaven will be eternally shut out to them and they will expend eternity in hell. So Jesus is the narrow way. He's the only way. And so right on the heels of what Jesus says, we pick up in Luke chapter 13. And there's a leader who's trying to kill Jesus. And so let's read this together. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, 
Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This passage before us has two main points, two main truths that teach us about Jesus. And here's the first truth that we see. We see the resolute sovereignty of Christ. The resolute sovereignty of Christ. Now, we don't know the motives of these Pharisees that come to Jesus. We don't know if they're in cahoots with Herod. We don't know if they know something that, 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 that they're not sharing. But basically, they come to Jesus and say, you need to get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. And perhaps they wanted Jesus to go to Jerusalem sooner so they could have more control over him. We really don't know. But we do know that Herod was a wicked ruler. Back in Mark chapter 6, you find out that Herod was there executing John the Baptist. And it was kind of a wicked scene in how John the Baptist was beheaded under Herod's leadership. So Herod is a wicked leader. He's a bad ruler. And we're kind of surprised by Jesus' words in verse 32. Go tell that fox. Oh, Jesus, that's some strong language. Go tell that fox. Now, now what does it mean that he's a fox? Well, I think we can look at it this way. In Herod's mind, he probably thought he was a lion. I'm a lion. I'm I'm a big dude. And Jesus says, no, he's a fox. He's sly. He's cunning, but he's kind of weak. He's a a cunning but weak leader. And so what we find out about this is very interesting. Under the threat of death, Jesus is undeterred from his mission. Nothing deters Jesus from his mission, not even this ruler, Herod. So it brings up a question. What exactly is the mission that Jesus was on? Well, Jesus tells us in John 4.34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, listen, I'm on a plan from my heavenly father to complete the work he gave me to do, and nothing's going to get me off track. And now you've got to remember the text here in Luke's gospel. What started this entire discussion where we're at right now? It goes all the way back to chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus has a plan to go to Jerusalem, and nothing's going to stop him. Herod's threats are not going to stop him. As a matter of fact, notice what Jesus says there in verse 32. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. 
Tell Herod that I'm going to continue casting out demons. I'm going to continue doing miracles. I'm going to continue doing what I've been doing all along until I finish my course. Herod doesn't dictate the terms. I'm going to finish what I started. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and finish my course. And what did Jesus cry out on the cross when he finished his course? John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus is not deterred from his mission to go to the cross. He's going to finish what God gave him to do. And notice the language that Jesus uses there. Verse 33, nevertheless, I must, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. I must. We call this in the original language, we call it a divine imperative. Jesus is under divine obligation to do this. In other words, God is sovereignly in charge of Jesus' plans here. I must do this. It's part of my plan. I must go to the cross. I must accomplish this. Jesus says this a lot, what he must do. Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Herod, you have no control. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you can't deter me from my mission. As a matter of fact, here's the interesting thing. Herod surprisingly does play a part in Jesus' plan on the cross, whether Herod knew it or not. Listen to what Acts says about the role of Herod. Acts 4, 27-28. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is God's predestined plan for Jesus to go to the cross, and nothing is stopping him. In eternity past, the Father and the Son entered into a covenant of redemption where the Father sent Jesus, and Jesus willingly went, and Jesus is going to accomplish the work that the Father gave him to do, and nothing's going to stop Jesus from doing that. No plan of God can be thwarted. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So Jesus has a resolute sovereignty. And this truth about his sovereignty has great implications for us today. Now, we don't have perfect knowledge like Jesus did, knowing what awaited him. And, and we, we're not Jesus. We can't emulate his perfect omniscience. But what we can do is this. We can trust in the same God that Jesus had faith in, in his Father. We can have that resolute confidence in our great God. Jesus was calm, cool, and collected in the face of adversity, you and I can be calm, cool, and collected in the face of adversity. Imminent threats coming from Herod. He's going to kill you. Jesus says, listen, I'm on my own timetable. I'm not afraid. So we can have the same trust in the sovereignty of God. Psalm 112, 6-7 for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Have you ever read that psalm before? 
If you trust in the sovereignty of God, you're not afraid of bad news because you know God is sovereign. God is in control. God is the one that's in charge of all things. God's working all things out according to the counsel of His will. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God's working out all things together for your good and for His glory. Ephesians 1.11, In Him we obtain an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God's working out all things sovereignly. We don't often see it. We don't often know how God's doing it behind the scenes, but we can trust that God is working out all things for your good according to the counsel of His will. He is sovereign. And so that gives us a resolute calmness like Jesus had in the face of adversity. We can have a calm. We can have a peace. We can have a security. We can have a confidence because we know that God's in charge of all things. He's absolutely sovereign, and no plan or purpose of His can be thwarted. Nothing's going to get Jesus off course to what he had determined to do to go to Jerusalem. And notice what Jesus says about what awaits him at Jerusalem. Notice what he says there. At the very end of verse 33, For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, it's God's predestined plan for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and face the cross. And nothing's going to stop him. Not Herod, not Pilate. Nobody's going to stop what God has ordained to happen. So Jesus has a resolute sovereignty to go to Jerusalem. Which brings us to the next truth, this discussion about Jerusalem. So the first thing is a resolute sovereignty. The second thing we see about Jesus is a responsive sorrow. A responsive sorrow of Christ. The sorrow of Christ. Notice what he says there in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The reason he says it twice, it's, it's a lament. It's an expression of extreme sadness. This is an intense emotion over God's city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, God's chosen city. And notice in verse 34, the present tense verbs. The city that kills, not killed, kills the prophets, and stones, not stoned, those who were sent to it. Now, Israel had a checkered past. You go back and you read your Old Testament, and they did stone prophets, and they did kill prophets, and they did treat the men of God in very, very wicked ways. And it's a foreshadowing of what Jerusalem, the city, is going to do to Jesus. Back in Jeremiah 26, there's a prophet named Uriah that had to flee to Egypt, and Jehoiakim the king went and sent his guards down, got Uriah, brought him back to the streets of Jerusalem, and had him murdered in the streets so that people could see him being killed in the streets. A prophet of God was killed in the streets of Jerusalem. If that wasn't bad enough, one of God's prophets was stoned in the very temple in Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles 24, 20-21. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, 
the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people. So Zechariah the prophet. He stood above the people. He's in the temple. He says, Thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper because you've forsaken the Lord? He's forsaken you. He's preaching a message to the people to repent. Look at verse 21. But they conspired against him, God's prophet, Zechariah, and they commanded the king that they stone him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. They killed one of God's prophets in the temple in Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 21, 16, Manasseh, the wicked king, killed so many people that it said the streets in Jerusalem were filled with blood. In 2 Kings 24, 4, that same wicked king Jehoiakim also filled the streets of Jerusalem with blood. So it was God's chosen city, but it had a history of being wicked to those that came to preach the truth. And in Jesus' day, it's being run by a bunch of Pharisees and religious leaders who are hypocritical. They're not trusting in Jesus. They have their own agenda. And they're walking in the footsteps of those Old Testament prophets who put God's people to death. And so the the city of Jerusalem is hard-hearted. They're rebellious. They're wicked. But yet Jesus' heart goes out to this wicked city. He cries over the city. He has compassion over Jerusalem. And notice the imagery that Jesus uses here. He says there, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. This imagery of, a, of, a, of an eagle or a chicken or a large bird gathering its children, gathering its chick under the the protection of the wings. This imagery of God being a a God like an eagle or like a a bird gathering his children is very pronounced in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 17, 8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Shadow of your wings. Russell read this earlier. Psalm 57, 1 and 2. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 61, 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Isaiah 31, 5. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it. Jesus' heart goes out for the city of Jerusalem. A heart of compassion. A heart of love. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, "As, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Here's what blows our minds. At the same time that Jesus is absolutely sovereign, he also has a heart of compassion for helpless, weak, hell-bound sinners. Never get over the fact that Jesus loves to save sinners. And he demonstrated this love on the cross. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Just a side note. If Jesus has this type of compassion for rebellious sinners, we as his people should have the same type of compassion for those without Christ. Does your heart break for those that you know are not in a relationship with Christ? Do you weep over their condition? Does your heart break over their rebellion? Do you long to see them come to faith in Christ? We should have that same heart that Jesus has of compassion. But even though Jesus had great compassion, notice what it says. How often I would gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. In the original language, I willed, you willed not. I desired, you desired not. I wanted to, you didn't want to. Now this brings up some questions. Who was not willing to come to Jesus? Who's Jesus addressing here? Who's the actual target of his conversation? You don't get all the details in Luke's gospel that you get in Matthew's, but in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 23 in particular, Matthew 23 is some of the strongest words Jesus gives anywhere in the Bible to the Pharisees. It's a, it's a strong rebuke, a woe to the Pharisees. And this is how he starts Matthew 23, th- 1 through 3. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They don't practice what they preach. These are hypocrites. And then in verse 13, Jesus says something very, very interesting that relates to what we saw last week. See if you catch what Jesus says about the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 13. And by the way, Matthew 23 is the same exact word for word what we see here in Luke chapter 13, where Jesus says, I long to gather you as a chicken gathers her children. The exact same wording verbatim is in in Matthew chapter 23. You just get a little bit fuller picture. But Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven and people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now remember what last week we talked about? Jesus said, I'm the narrow way. I'm the door. I'm the gate. So he's saying to the Pharisees, not only are you guys not going through the narrow gate, you're shutting people out from coming to me. So what's the real crime here? What's the real sin here? Was it that the the people of Jerusalem just didn't want to come to Jesus? No, the real issue here is that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, by their wickedness, by their hypocrisy, by their false teaching, were actually preventing the people from coming to Jesus. They were putting blockades in the way for them to go to Jesus. And he rips into them and says, listen, I'm rebuking you because you're shutting the door out. Now look at the the verse carefully. Look at the verse carefully, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together? Who does Jesus want to gather? The children. But you were not willing. Who's not willing that the children be gathered? The Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones that are preventing the children from being gathered because of their false teaching and their hypocrisy. 
They were temporarily preventing the people in Jerusalem from hearing and coming to their Messiah. In other words, they were actively resisting the work of the Messiah. And that had been their modus operandi all along. That was their pattern. These religious leaders did not want to come to faith in Jesus. In John 5, 39-40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. As it is, they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Pharisees, you're refusing to come to me, and you're also refusing others from coming to me. You're shutting out the kingdom. Acts 7, 51, Stephen, when he's about to get stoned by the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees that are there, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Okay. We need to ask some questions of this text. We need to ask some theological questions. So I need you to hang with me this morning because a lot of people will actually use this passage of Scripture to champion libertarian free will and they will say things like, Jesus really, really wanted to save these people, but they successfully resisted Jesus' will. So therefore, this is a proof text for human libertarian free will that we can reject and resist Jesus. He tries to do all he can to save us, but in the end he can't because our will has prevented him from doing that. So, let's ask the question. If God is absolutely sovereign, does not this passage seem to teach that God's grace can be resisted? I wanted to save you, but you prevented me from saving you. My human free will stopped you from doing what you wanted to do. Now, let's ask a question. Why were they unwilling to come? Why do people not trust in Jesus? Okay, let's talk about free will for a moment. Because I get this question a lot. People ask me a lot. What about free will? What about human free will? Do we have free will? So I want to I clear up the confusion because there's a lot of confusion out there about this whole issue of free will. I don't particularly like the term free will. I like the term creaturely freedom. We are creatures created by God and we do have freedom, but it's, it's a derived freedom. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, their fall affected everything that we do. So we are born in a state where our mind, our hearts, and our wills are fallen. We are born with freedom to act. But here's the main point, and you need to listen to this very carefully. We choose based upon our nature and what we want to choose and our greatest inclination at the time that we choose. We choose based upon our nature. We choose based upon what we want to do at that time. So, there is such a thing as natural freedom or natural free will. For example, if you go to the store over at Walmart, you have the freedom to choose chocolate ice cream or strawberry ice cream. Nobody's stopping you from doing that. You can choose chocolate or strawberry or Rocky Road, or whatever, whatever greatest desire you have for ice cream, you can choose it. You have the natural freedom to choose a Ford over a Chevy, or to get a Dodge, or to get a Porsche, or to get a Lamborghini. You make decisions every single day to choose. It's called natural freedom. You can make decisions every day. You have the freedom to choose. It's called a natural freedom that you've been endowed with where you can make choices because you're choosing based upon your nature and you're choosing based upon your greatest desire at the time. 
That being said, the Bible speaks about our nature as sinners. And when it comes to choosing positively for Jesus, things that are spiritual for Jesus, the Bible teaches that we are unable to do that. In other words, our will, when it comes to spiritual things, the will is not free to choose for Christ because we're sinful and in bondage. So we have a natural freedom to make choices all day long, but we have a spiritual inability that comes because of being sinners. So if you choose based upon your heart's desire... What does the Bible say about your heart's desire? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here's the point. If left to ourselves, we would never choose Jesus because our hearts don't want to. We would not. We don't have the moral freedom to choose Jesus because we are sinful. And so here's the point. We will always choose based upon our nature. And if you are a sinner that's not been saved, your nature will always lead you to not choose Jesus. You still have natural freedom to make choices all day long, but when it comes to salvation, because you are spiritually incapable, you don't want to choose Jesus, and you can't choose Jesus. You don't have that ability. Now, you say, Pastor Sean, where do you get this in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked, because i got a few verses for you. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Without Christ, we are slaves to sin, meaning we do what our nature tells us to do, and we're enslaved to that nature, and we're always going to do what our heart wants to do based upon being a slave to sin. And we cannot submit to God. We cannot please God. Romans 8, 6-8, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are unsaved, you cannot please God. So let me just ask you a question. Does it please God to believe in Jesus? Can everybody say yes? Okay, you can't do that. You can't believe in Jesus on your own. You cannot do it. Not only do you not want to do it, you cannot do it. Why? Paul would go on to say in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You and I are spiritually dead and morally unable to choose positively for Christ left to ourselves. So let's ask the second question that you're probably asking. Well, then how in the world did I ever become a Christian? If I can't choose, if if I'm morally unable, if, if my will's in bondage, how did I ever become a Christian? How did I ever do this thing? How did I ever get saved? How how does that happen? Why did you believe? Well, here's the answer. You chose Jesus because God did a supernatural work in your heart to give you the grace to be able to do what you can never do on your own. Think about it this way. Michael Horton makes this illustration. He says, try drinking from a rusty cup. The water's not rusty. The cup is. 
No matter what kind of drink one might put in the cup, the rusty taste will always be there. If you've got a rusty cup, what do you do? Do you keep putting the water in it and drinking the rusty cup? What do you have to do? You have to get what? A new cup. A new cup. And here's the point. Because you were born a sinner and spiritually dead, you're like the rusty cup. No matter how much you try to overcome your rustiness, you can't do it. God has to make you a new cup. He has to make you a new creation. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 7, 17 through 18. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Here's the point. All of us are born rotten, diseased trees to the root. And no matter how much you try to do stuff good spiritually, no matter how much you try to produce something, all that's going to come out is disease. So you've got to change the tree. You've got to get down to the root system. You've got to have a heart transplant. <coughs> Excuse me. God has to do a supernatural work of grace in you to take out that heart. If your heart is deceitful, if your heart is tainted, if your heart is corrupt, what does God have to do? God has to give you a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26-27. Excuse me. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God has to take out that heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh and only God does that. You can't do the heart transplant. God has to do that to you. John 5, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus has to give you life. You have to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus gives it to you. God does this to you. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. So if, if, if you've been given to... Jesus by the Father, you're going to come to Jesus. But here's the problem. In John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. You can't come to Jesus unless God does something to you. God must draw you. God must raise you to new life. God must take out your heart of stone. God must do the supernatural work to make you willing to come. Because before you were not willing. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. God has to make you alive. Now, let me be very clear here. When God does this to you, he never violates your will. He changes your will. He doesn't violate your will. God does not drag you kicking and screaming into heaven as if, like, I really don't want to believe in Jesus, but God's making me do it anyway. That never happened to anybody. God changes the will that would never left to itself trust in Jesus. Here's the point. If left to yourself because of your deadness of heart, because of your wicked heart, you would never choose in a million years unless God did the work to you to make you willing to cause that new birth to be in you. So this brings up another question. If people have to be changed, why doesn't Jesus do it right here? Why doesn't Jesus change them? Why doesn't Jesus make them come? Why does Jesus say, you are not willing? Why didn't Jesus just make them willing to come? 
Well, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. It could just be they didn't want to come, and so Jesus said, if you don't want to come, I'm not going to force you to come. Here's the point. When it comes time for you to be saved, it's unstoppable. God will make sure it happens. You can't resist it. Now, you may resist Jesus multiple times. Probably most of you never became a Christian here the very first time you heard the gospel. You may have resisted, you may have resisted, you may have resisted, but there's that point in time where God says, that's your appointed time, I'm changing your heart, I'm taking out the heart of stone, I'm putting in the heart of flesh, I'm going to do the supernatural work of grace. When God decides to do that, you can't stop it. It will happen to you. And praise the Lord, because if it didn't happen to you, you'd never come. So you want that to happen to you so that you will freely come to Christ. Because if God doesn't do that in you, you'll not come because you can't come because of your dead, wicked heart. So, enough talking about free will. Let's get back to the passage of Scripture. The issue here is that the religious leaders were shutting out the pathway to Jesus by their hypocrisy. They were preventing the children of Jerusalem from being gathered. And what do you see happens in the, if you read kind of the rest of the Bible, let's just ask the question, the sad question. Do the Jewish people for the most part accept their Messiah? Do you see a lot of them come to faith in Christ in the book of Acts? Now, there's a 3,000 there at Pentecost, but if you go through the book of Acts, Paul usually goes to the Jew first, but then he goes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are really receiving Jesus. So for, for the most part, Jerusalem, Jerusalem has rejected Jesus. Now, there's hope, because in Romans chapter 9 through 11, we find out that during the end times, there will be numerous Jews who will be grafted back in, and there'll be a mass salvation of the Jewish people. But Jesus pronounces a imminent destruction upon their city. Look what he says in verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. Your house is being left. It's a prophecy from Jeremiah 22.5. If you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Do you know what happened in A.D. 70? The Roman Empire marched into Jerusalem, burned it to the ground. It became a desolation just a few years later. This is a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem to that audience right there, A.D. 70. God's going to leave Jerusalem to its own devices and they'll suffer the consequences of their own rebellion. Now, Jesus does quote Psalm 118.26 there. I tell you, you'll not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I had to do a little bit of work here because that sounds like Palm Sunday, doesn't it? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna, Hosanna. Some scholars think this is talking about Palm Sunday, but if you look at the ultimate context of what Jesus is saying, it probably fits better into his second coming. It's probably more in reference to his second coming. It fits the context of chapters 12 and 13. In chapters 12 and 13, Jesus has talked about being ready for his second coming. He's talked about the kingdom. He's talked about heaven being shut out. He's talked about the narrow way. And so what he's saying here is this. Those people who rejected Jesus, when he comes back, they will know fully and finally who it was that they rejected. 
They'll know he's the Messiah at that point. But it will be too late. Revelation says it this way in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Who was responsible for piercing Jesus? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. These religious leaders were the ones that were responsible for the death of Christ. And when he comes back in the clouds, they will see him as the one they rejected. And they'll know at that point that he truly is the Messiah. But they will wail because it's too late. Philippians 2, 10-11, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the point. These men did not want to confess Jesus as Lord then and there, but when he comes back, they will. Every single person is going to confess Jesus as Lord. You'll either do it with joy because you're his child, or you'll do it with anger because it's too late. But he is Lord, and you will confess him as Lord. So how do you respond to these two truths? The sovereignty of Jesus and the sorrow of Jesus. Let's talk about sovereignty first. Do you trust in the absolute sovereignty of God for everything in your life? Not only your salvation, but your family, your job, your finances, your future. We as Christians should be the most calm, cool, and collected people on the planet because we serve a sovereign God. We're not afraid of bad news because we trust in God who's in control of all things. Do you have that overwhelming sense of peace because you serve an absolutely sovereign Savior? What about the sorrow, the compassion, the mercy? Do you rest in Jesus' compassion for you? Have you run under the shadow of his wings for protection? Have you come into his fold? Are you trusting in Jesus? You see two things here in our Lord. The sovereignty and the sorrow. The power and the compassion. The holiness and the love. Nothing's going to stop Jesus from accomplishing his mission, and yet he does it with compassion and mercy. He's the only one that's ever lived that has absolute power and absolute love, and he demonstrated it on the cross for us. The only response that you can have to an absolutely sovereign Savior and an absolutely compassionate Savior, I don't know of any other response than this. Get on your face and bow in humble adoration and joy and get under the shelter of his wings and be ready for that final day when he comes back and confess him as king of kings and lord of lords don't wait till that last day don't wait till it's too late today would we all bow before jesus you are the king of kings you are the lord of lords but we're going to get under the shadow of your wings We're going to get under your protection. We're going to trust in your sovereignty. And we're going to trust in your love. And there's no better place to be than under the shadow of the wings of our great Savior. I don't know about you, but we live in very anxious times. You might say we live in scary times. 
best place to be is under the wings of Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer this morning. Thank you that you are a loving, compassionate Savior. We want to be gathered under your wings of protection. We want to be in the shadow of your wings, to be sheltered from the storm. Lord, there may be many in this room today that are struggling with maybe assurance of their salvation. Maybe others are anxious about a future decision. Lord, maybe some just don't have that peace in their heart that comes from knowing you're absolutely sovereign. Would you grant that peace this morning, Lord? Would you just wrap your wings of love around them and draw them in and let them know how much you love them, how much you are in control, and how sovereignly holy and compassionate you are. Lord, we do live in fearful times. There's stuff going on in our world with Ukraine, and there's stuff going on with gas prices, and there's stuff going on on the home front. And, and Lord, just everywhere we look, there's just, it seems like it's just never-ending. And we can be a very frantic, fretful, anxious people if we do not believe in your absolute sovereignty. So Lord, help us to leave this place knowing that you're in control. You're on your throne. You're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You, nothing deters you from your mission. Nothing stops your plans. You are absolutely sovereign. And as Spurgeon used to say, that's a soft pillow for us to put our heads on at night. We can sleep well at night because we serve a sovereign God. Lord, help us to sleep well tonight. Because you are sovereign. No matter what rages in the world, no matter what rages in our family, no matter what rages at our workplace, we can put our heads at night on the pillow of your sovereignty knowing that you are in control. And for that, we say thank you, Jesus. We love you, we honor you, we praise you. Would we leave this place with assurance, with peace, with confidence? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.